You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. Before we jump into this difficult text, will you join me in prayer? Fathers, we just sang your Lord over all, and I know for me and for many of us, it's, it's easy to forget just how big and mighty and powerful you are beyond our comprehension. Your word tells us that you uphold the world and the universe by the word of your power, that to you the nations are like dust, dust on scales. And so I pray as we come before you this morning, We've got a lot of little things that we're worried about. We've got big things in our lives maybe we're worried about, but that we would be reminded and recentered once again that you are Lord of all. You rule over all. You're in complete control. And you're also good. We get to call you Father. And so, Lord, I pray in your goodness you would convict us where we've gone astray like a good father. I pray for people here who are just weary and burdened, that you would give great comfort through your word, even in a hard passage. Lord, we know your spirit is actively at work in our midst, and so we pray that he would do a powerful and mighty work in us, that we show up with open hands, open hearts, expectation for what you want to do in us and through us as your people. I pray that the words of my mouth might be pleasing to you, it might be useful in building up the church. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You know, 11 months ago, when the pandemic hit, the world as we knew it really ground to a halt. It was something unlike anything any of us had experienced. The Western world was really brought to its knees. And, you know, my theology, I think what the Bible teaches is that God is sovereign over all. And then nothing that comes to pass comes to pass apart from him. There's, there's no uh, plan Bs in heaven. You know, when a pandemic strikes the earth, God's not running around screaming to his angels, clean up on planet earth. We've got a real problem here. He's sovereign over everything. It doesn't mean he's the author of evil, but he is sovereign over it. And so when it hit, we hit pause from our series in Matthew, and we did a series that we entitled This Incredible Opportunity. And the heart behind that series was, because God is in control, and because this, this event's happened that's really shaken us, and in Hebrews 12, God's actually referred to as the shaker of the earth, we wanted to receive it with open hands, saying, God, what might you want to do in us as your people in the midst of this really, really hard, challenging season. And looking back on it, uh, I still believe in that series, but I think it was premature. I mean, back then when we preached that series, we were all still fighting over toilet paper and food. We were figuring out how to do Zoom and what to do with school and work. We were kind of still shell-shocked. But now, we've been living in this pandemic purgatory for close to a year a year of the in-between, the stopping and the starting, and the we're going, we're not going. We've all suffered loss this year. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one, loss of a senior year, loss of a job, 
in our home, my, my youngest daughter, she spent the last three years just, she could not wait. I've never seen a kid more excited to go to school. And she really lost kindergarten for her. And she'll be okay, but it's a real loss. We've all got losses. We've all also been through a very intense period of social turmoil, the racialized violence. We've had protests. We've also had riots, heated election, everything that's happened. And I think we're all feeling it. You know, I heard someone recently say that we're all right now, we're all kind of like turtles without their shells. We're all pretty sensitive and feel a little battered and bruised. And I think it's a good time for us at this moment to circle back to that question. God, God, what might you want to produce in us as your church and as your people? What might, what might you be trying to teach us? How might you be trying to grow us in the midst of this really challenging season? And for me, I have a whole lot of hope. Because for years before the pandemic, I've watched as the church growth in America has stalled, if not declined. We've seen a lot happen in the church that's very discouraging. And I've been praying for years that God would bring about a movement of spiritual renewal, what some would call an awakening, that he would really wake his people up to the reality of who he is, what Christ has done, the mission he has for us, and that our faith would not just be something that, you know, we kind of do, but it would be, I don't know how to say it, maybe God would become more alive and more real to us than he's ever been. You can study these moments throughout history when, when awakenings happen, time kind of collapses. And, you know, if in a normal year you'd see 20 baptisms, you'll see 20 baptisms in a week. Like God just pours out his spirit in powerful ways. And that's what I long for. And if you study awakenings, you'll see three things. One, they often come on the heels of a period of great darkness. So, so check, that's encouraging. Two, they always begin with repentance on the part of God's people. They always begin with God doing a work in his own people. And then the third mark of renewals, of awakenings, is you can't make them happen. They're always an act of God, a sovereign act of God. And so we can't force something like that to happen, but I do think we can, we can put ourselves in a posture of receiving, of prayer, and of asking God to do a powerful work in our midst. Now, last week, I called us as a church to engage in some self-reflection and examination, self-critique and repentance. And I want you to know that that was not a one-and-done sermon. It's a theme I want us to keep coming back to. And, and everything I just said is why. I want us to keep coming back to that over the coming weeks. And like last week, the text we're looking at today presents us, I think, with plenty of opportunities to do just that, to engage in reflection and self-critique, to practice repentance. Because in chapter 23, Matthew records for us Jesus's final and greatest confrontation with the Pharisees. And it's a hard text, and I'll be real honest, there, this week I've been, stu been stuck on this question of, of why... If you've ever seen The Office, you know, Michael one time asked Toby, why are you the way that you are? Like, <laughs> why are the Pharisees the way that they are? I really don't think that they woke up one morning and said, you know what, we want to wake or, or we want to end up on the wrong side of history and the wrong side of God. 
And so what happened? How did they end up here? And so I did a deep dive into the history of the Pharisees. And I'm a history nerd and a Bible nerd, so I think it's fascinating, but I do think it'll be helpful for you. I'll give you a really short summary. To understand the Pharisees, you got to know something of the, the history between the two Testaments. In 587, Nebuchadnezzar came, he destroyed Jerusalem, and he took God's people into exile, which in the midst of that, he destroyed the temple and God's people who had finally, you know, they, they spent centuries wanting to arrive in the promised land and flourish in the promised land. God delivered them there, and then he allowed them to be taken away. And it was devastating for his people. Fifty years later, roughly, the Persians came and they defeated the Babylonians. They allowed God's people back to the promised land. They rebuilt the temple. This is in Ezra, Nehemiah. And it was for about 100 years, they had this, this time of kind of renewal a little bit. And then a man named Alexander showed up and he conquered the whole world. And everywhere Alexander went, the Greek language went, Greek culture went, that included among God's people. And so this foreign culture was coming in and it was so hard to resist. And so some Jewish people were leaving the faith and just kind of diving headfirst into Greek culture. In 167 BC, a foreign army came, desecrated the temple. They built an altar to a Greek god inside of it. And then in about 100 years after that, the Romans came and conquered Jerusalem as well. And General Pompey entered not just the temple when he conquered it. He strolled right into the Holy of Holies, which was the ultimate desecration of the temple. Now, put yourself in the sandals of the average Jewish person in 60 BC. God's given you these amazing promises in his word, promises about land, about being with you, about giving you a righteous, eternal king who will rule with justice and your nation will flourish. You've got these promises, but for the last 500 years, you've, you've been knocked around like a pinball by various foreign nations, Gentile, unclean powers. Your temple's been desecrated. You've watched fellow Jews abandon the faith. You don't have any military power. You don't have any political influence. You feel very helpless and mistreated and forgotten in the world. Think of the questions that you would ask of God in that season, because he's been quiet for hundreds of years at this point. You'd probably ask questions like, God, where are you? What's happened to our nation? What's wrong? Where did we go wrong? And how do we fix this? You might ask God the same, they, you'd ask the same question that I put before you last week. Like, God, what, what do you require of us in this moment? How do we fix this? And there were some Jews that said we need to retreat from culture and they built, you know, little communities that were totally cut off from the world. There were others who really just compromised. But there was one group that came along and said, what we need, we need renewal. We need spiritual revival. We need to renew our commitment to God. And that group was the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a conservative renewal movement. And they believed... They believed that if God's people would turn from their sins, their moral compromises, and rededicate themselves to him, that he very well might come through on his promises. 
And so the Pharisees, they became intensely committed to living holy lives, to living morally and ceremonially pure lives. And the purity wasn't just about their own hearts. It was about the nation. Like we need to purify the nation. We need to show God that we, we are committed to him. They actively recruited others to join their movement and hopes that God might act in a powerful way. And they really thought if we could recover the heart and soul of our faith, if we could recover holiness, God might respond. You know, there was a verse this last year that I saw used a lot. It's from 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. Maybe you've seen it too. In which God declares, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. In a very real way, this would have been a motto of the Pharisees. Like, let's turn, let's repent, let's seek God's face. I mean, there was one sect, because you have to remember the Pharisees, it's a conservative renewal movement, so they're not all the same. There's different, you know, there's a spectrum, but, but one group of Pharisees really believed that if, that if God's people could keep his law for 24 hours straight, that, that would lead to God sending the Messiah. I mean, they were convinced, if we can just do this for 24 hours, God will reward us by sending the promised king. Now, when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, there are thousands of Pharisees in the land, and Jesus shows up. And what's fascinating, you know, and this is where familiarity really hurts us, but what's fascinating is Jesus shows up and he doesn't praise them for their faithfulness. He doesn't praise them for their holiness. Instead, he squares up on them. And he calls them hypocrites, blind guides, whitewashed tombs, a brood of vipers. Man, that's challenged me, and I think it should challenge you as well. Because if you were to ask me, what do we need? We need spiritual renewal. We need to rededicate ourselves to the Lord. We need to seek his face. And that's exactly what they did. But it went terribly wrong. Where did they go wrong? Well, that's where Matthew 23 is a gift. Because in Matthew 23, we see the indictments Jesus brings against the Pharisees. We see where they went wrong, and it should serve as a warning for us. And instead of looking at each woe individually, I want to zoom out just a little bit and say, what are the, the major indictments Jesus brings? And there are three major indictments that I think Jesus brings in these seven woes. And I think they should serve as warnings to us as God's people as we seek his face in the days and weeks ahead. The first indictment is that Jesus tells the Pharisees, in essence, your holiness is too shallow. He indicts them for a shallow holiness. Now, that would have sounded very weird to the average Jewish, Jewish person in that day because the Pharisees were so passionate about holiness. I mean, they were so so committed to being holy, to being set apart, that they didn't just study God's word. They actually would read commands and then they would say, all right, we know that's wrong. So how do we make sure we don't even get close to crossing the lines? You know, sometimes in churches we talk about, well, that's a slippery slope. The Pharisees identified every slippery slope on the path to holiness and they built giant guardrails to make sure no one would ever cross into acts that were unholy or disobedient. 
And so they had rules about all, all sorts of things. One of the big ones was the Sabbath. And we see that in the controversies between Jesus and the Pharisees throughout the Gospels. You see, God was committed that his people would observe the Sabbath. Jeremiah 17, God forbids his people from carrying heavy loads on the Sabbath. And God's heart behind this, because Jesus declares the Sabbath, Sabbath is meant for man. God's heart behind this is that every human being one day a week would rest. And so don't carry heavy loads. That means don't move furniture. Relax. Be reminded that he's in control and he rules the world. Now the Pharisees, they were like, okay, we really need to observe this. And someone came along. I don't know who it was. And they said, all right, but how do we define what a heavy load is? If we're not to carry a heavy load, what's a what, what defines a heavy load? And so they sat down and they would debate and they came up with, here's an excerpt. For them, a heavy load is food equal in weight to a dried fig. So that means you could probably carry like three raisins, but not four. I don't know exactly what a dried fig, fig weighs. A heavy load is a, enough wine for mixing in a goblet. A heavy load is one swallow of milk, so I guess you could, you could have a sip of it, but not more than that. It's enough ink to write two letters of the alphabet. So if you wanted to write one letter, then you could carry that amount of ink. But if it's enough to write two, you couldn't. I mean, they were meticulous. That's what I want you to see. And the, the heart behind this is they wanted to get it right. They so wanted to get it right. So they had all these rules about the Sabbath. They had rules about clean and unclean. They had plenty of rules that would resonate today about washing our hands and how you wash your hands. Do you do it with open hands or fists? They had rules about plates and how you washed your plates. Do you clean the outside first and then the inside or the inside, then the outside? I mean, they were obsessed with this. And yet Jesus comes along and he says to them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. What Jesus is saying to them is you're obsessed with how you clean these things, but, but what you guys are like, you're like a cup. It's been cleaned on the outside, but you paid no attention to the inside. Now it's filled with nastiness and mold and grossness, with greed, Jesus says, with self-indulgence. He goes on and he says, you are like whitewashed tombs. Now, one of the laws they had back then, one of the, the commands God gave is you're not supposed to touch a dead body. And if you do touch a dead body or you come into contact with a corpse, then you're ceremonially unclean for seven days. And so when people would travel to Jerusalem for Passover, which is the time at which this takes place, they, they don't want to be unclean because they've come to worship. And so they would actually go around and whitewash all of the tombs in the region so you wouldn't accidentally stumble on a grave. I mean, these guys were so serious. If your shadow fell on a grave, then you would be unclean. And so right around Passover, all of the tombs, they would be bright, white, look very, very clean as a warning. So no one just, you know, accidentally defiled themselves. And Jesus is saying, all that's happening right out here, right now with the tombs, that's kind of what you guys are like. You're clean on the outside, but inside you're filled with dead man's bones. 
and all sorts of uncleanness. See, Jesus, he doesn't condemn the Pharisees because of their passion for holiness, but rather for the shallowness of their holiness. Yes, they were obsessed about these things, but they're also greedy. They love the praise of men rather than the praise of God. They love seats of honor. They, they were self-indulgent. They abused their power. They gave great attention to external things that people could see, but they neglected their hearts. And if we've learned anything in our study of Matthew, we've learned that God cares about our hearts. And heart doesn't just mean emotions. It does mean that. But heart, that's really the, the seat of who we are. It's the central operating system. It's, it's the seat of our not just emotions, but our desires, our longings, our affections, and our fears. And the Pharisees gave such great attention to behavior, but their hearts, their hearts were neglected. In our day, we, we might see this in people who, you know, never miss a quiet time, but inside they're filled with Bitterness, jealousy, they gossip, they slander people. We might see this in people who religiously attend church, but they're filled with a lot of anger and judgment towards other people. You might see this in people who, you know, they've never cheated on their spouse, but they look down their nose at people who have or committed adultery, and yet they still have a very active fantasy life, and they think that's okay. And Jesus is saying, I don't just care about your behavior. To be holy doesn't mean to just master certain behaviors. Holiness is ultimately a matter of the heart, because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. All that we do flows from it. And so if our understanding of holiness doesn't get to the heart, to who we are, We're no different than they were. And so what does holiness of the heart look like? And I think a great place right here in verse 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And as a preacher, I love that he gave this addition, because we do have a budget to meet as a church. He said, these things you ought to have done. You should have tithed. That was good. It's not bad. But you shouldn't have neglected the other things. And you've strained out a gnat, but you've swallowed a camel. You've been so obsessed about counting out the mint leaves that you're tithing, and you've neglected the fact that you... You've neglected the weightier matters of the law. I mean, that's really a pretty astounding phrase, and I, it's kind of, I haven't been able to shake it for months that, you know, all of the laws from God, all of it's good, but Jesus does say, but some of it's more essential than others. Parts of the law are weightier than other parts of the law. And at the very heart, the very center of the law, Jesus says, is justice mercy, and faithfulness. Now, I preached on this just a few months ago, but I want to preach on it again. 
And I want to say a lot of the same things. Because I feel this indictment in myself. I look at the church and I see this indictment as well. These weightier matters, they really do get to the heart, which is what Jesus cares about. And so justice, justice appears concept of justice, the word justice appears 200 times in the Old Testament. And at the most basic level, it means to treat people fairly. Often when this word appears in the Old Testament, it appears, four groups of people appear alongside of it. You have widows, you have orphans, you have immigrants, and you have the poor. And so in the Bible, when this concept of justice emerges, it's, it's usually connected to people who are vulnerable. And to be a person of justice means you care about the vulnerable. And the vulnerable in our day, was, there's a lot of overlap, but I would include single moms, refugees, the poor, the unborn. In the Bible, the justness of a society is measured by how it protects and cares for the weak, the vulnerable, and the disadvantaged. And I would say if you go and read the prophets, it's interesting. You know, I haven't triple-checked this, but when you read the prophets, this is one of the main indictments God brings against his people. It's that they're not practicing justice. They're not doing justice. It's not that they didn't read the Torah enough. It's not that they weren't tithing enough, typically. One of the major themes is you guys have been unjust. You haven't looked after the vulnerable. Number two is mercy. Mercy is closely linked with forgiveness, but it's broader than just forgiving someone of a specific offense. Uh, to be a person of mercy means to have a posture, an attitude that, that's not quick to take offense, but it's quick to show forgiveness. A merciful person doesn't hold grudges or gloat over other people's failings. A merciful person doesn't entertain revenge fantasies or stew in their anger. Mercy. And then the third one's faithfulness which means walking in utter dependence upon God, not just obeying the letter of his law, but also the spirit of his law. It's holiness of mind, body, and heart. And all of these things, you'll notice, I mean, it will certainly bleed over into behavior and express itself in behavior, but being a person, a just person, a merciful person, a faithful person, those are all matters of the heart. They're who we are deep down. And it's a lot harder and requires more work and more self-examination, more repentance to become those types of people than it does to not carry a certain load on the Sabbath. And that's Jesus' indictment of the Pharisees. You're swallowing gnats, but you're, you're, or you're, you're straining out gnats, but you're swallowing camels. their holiness, it was too shallow. The second indictment, though, it's not just that their holiness was too shallow, it's also that it was too narrow. 
You got to track with me for here for a minute. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, a convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. See, their narrow view of holiness led them to keeping people out of the kingdom and keeping themselves out of the kingdom. And even when they would go and make converts, those converts weren't coming into the kingdom. But the overarching indictment that Jesus gives in these two woes are you're blocking the path for others and you're not taking it yourself. And to really understand this indictment, you have to understand that Holiness, I would say there are two dimensions to holiness. Typically, when we think of holiness, we think of who we are and what our behavior is, or maybe even what our hearts are. And that's not wrong. To be holy means to be set apart. And so part of holiness, one dimension of it is what we've been set apart from. Things we don't do, how we've been set apart from the world. And that's really important. But for a lot of people, that's their entire understanding of holiness. But the Bible offers a second dimension to holiness. Not just what you've been set apart from, but what you've been set apart for. That God sets his people apart for a purpose. Not just that they would be better than other people. But ultimately, so they they might be a light to the world and a blessing to the world. And this goes all the way back to Abraham. When God called Abraham and Sarah and basically founded The nation of Israel, his people, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So hit pause there, first dimension. I'm going to make you a nation. You're going to be great. You're going to be a blessing. You're going to be distinct. You're going to be set apart from the world. Part one, God continues, and he says, so that, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. But in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. From the beginning, the reason God called Abraham was for the sake of the nations, that they might be an avenue, a channel, a vehicle through which God would bless the entire world. And yet the Pharisees, they were so focused on being set apart from and forgot that they were set apart for that by the time Jesus began his earthly ministry, they didn't even have a concept that God might choose to show favor and kindness and blessing to the non-Jewish world, to the Gentiles. I mean, the Pharisees, actually, what they were praying and waiting for was for God to wipe out all of the Gentiles. I mean, that's what they were hoping for. If we live holy enough lives... He'll just get rid of them all, and then we'll have the place to ourselves. And yet Jesus shows up, claiming to be from God. What does he do? He eats with unclean people, tax collectors, prostitutes, alcoholics. He talks with a Samaritan woman. It's unclean. He even engages with Roman centurions and shows them favor and kindness and love. And the Pharisees, they 
they see this and it's so at odds with their understanding of God that they actually view Jesus as a threat. Because remember, they wanted to see God renew their nation. And they're seeing Jesus doing all this stuff and they're like thinking, no, 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 that's, that's the opposite of what we need to be doing. We need to be setting ourselves apart from this world. And here he is eating and drinking and laughing. He's going to slow us down. He's going to get in the way. He's doing the opposite. You see, they lack the imagination to see that God was bringing redemption to the unclean, the sinners, and the Gentiles. You know, a shallow holiness plus this narrow view of holiness seems to always end in self-righteousness, pride, arrogance, and what I would call rigidity. We're right, everyone else is wrong, become like us. And it distorts your view of God, distorts your understanding of the purpose for which he's placed you on this earth, that it's not that he doesn't care about what we've been set apart from and, and our hearts. He absolutely does. But he also wants us to be a people who bring good news and who do good works, who serve as a blessing to the world. I think at the root of both of these things, there's, there's really a defective view of God going on for the Pharisees. I think a really good question for us to ask is, ask yourself, what is God's posture towards the world? When God looks at the world, what's his posture towards it? It's kind of a hard question. Because you can actually find some Bible verses on, to, to back up a lot of things. So we got to zoom out and say, okay, looking at the Bible as a whole, what is God's posture towards the world? Does he want to condemn the world? Does he want to make sinners suffer? Does he want to wipe out all of the unclean people? I submit to you, when you zoom out and look at the Bible as a whole, you will see the overarching theme of Scripture is that God is graciously and yet fiercely committed to saving people from their sin. He's graciously and fiercely committed to rescuing and redeeming people. When Moses asked God what his name is, God responds, The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious who's slow to anger and abounding, overflowing and steadfast love who's faithful, who keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And yes, I know if you keep going on, he says, but I'm not going to let the guilty go unpunished forever. He makes it clear he's a God of justice, but what's his heart? Go to John 3. Why did God send his son into the world? John tells us it wasn't to condemn the world. It was to save the world. See, but the Pharisees, they had such a narrow view of God and what he was up to in the world that they assumed the Messiah would, become a man of, would be a man of might who would strike down enemies, not a man of mercy who would be struck down for his enemies to redeem them. 
So I think there's a real warning for us here as well. We got to be aware of shallow holiness, of thinking if we just master some behaviors, that means our hearts are right. We also have to be aware of this narrow holiness, thinking God's for us. He's on our side and the rest of the world can burn. New Testament, 1 Timothy 2. We're told God desires for all people to be saved. 2 Peter 3, God doesn't want anyone to perish. And I know that can lead to some tricky theological things, but let the Bible say what it says. That God's heart is for the world. And I think that's a question for us, is our heart for the world. When we look at the church and we see Christians who are so angry and afraid and bitter and contentious, who lack mercy, who are defensive, I don't think that's what we're communicating. And I said last week, I'll say it again, it's really hard to love and be for someone that you hate or that you view as an enemy. So we need to be aware of shallow holiness. We need to be aware of that narrow kind of holiness. But neither of those things, as bad as they were, that wasn't the Pharisees' biggest problem. The Pharisees, their greatest sin, you know what it was? It was that when God confronted them and called them to repentance, they didn't respond. Their greatest sin is not that their hearts were shallow or narrow, it's that they were hard. The last woe. Jesus says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have taken part in the sh- with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. You know, we're different. <laughs> Jesus says, Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? This passage might sound strange coming on the heels of what I just said, but it's really not. Jesus' point is, you've been sent prophet after prophet, warning after warning. You've abused your position. And yet, when I come to you and I call you to repentance, you don't respond. What else is there to do? I mean, I actually think it's so interesting that Jesus calls them serpents and a brood of vipers. It's a callback to Genesis 3. Remember what the serpent did with Eve? He distorted her, under, or he tried to distort the image of God. Remember the question, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden, which he didn't? But he tried to give this vision of God and this picture of God that he is stingy and angry and controlling and overly restrictive. And what did the Pharisees do? The exact same thing. And Jesus calls them serpents. He finishes with this lament, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he had to have tears in his eyes while he said this, The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 24 begins by Jesus announcing that the temple was coming down once and for all. But he's not filled with 
delight or glee in striking down his enemies. He's filled with tears saying, turn, return to me. And a lot of them didn't, but some of them did. In John's gospel, we learn about a man named Nicodemus who was a Pharisee, who was guilty of all of these things. And yet Jesus preached to him and he said, you got to be born again. And that had to be so strange to Nicodemus. But you know what? He stuck in there and he stuck with Jesus. By the end of John's gospel, Nicodemus became a disciple of Jesus. There was another guy named Paul who was the Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, he was, he was the best there was. And Jesus put a call on his life. And Paul responded. When you look at Paul's life, what you see is he quits trusting in his own righteousness. He speaks a lot about the heart. He speaks a lot about his own heart and his growth and his struggles. And at the same time, his view of God became bigger. And so considering all of this, my prayer for us as a people is to engage and say, what's true? What's not true? What might I be blind to? You know, as, <laughs> there's something about us that we don't like the concept of repentance, but we, we seem to forget or neglect the fact that oftentimes repentance is the holiest thing that you can do. Like the holiest thing you can do is say to God, like, I've been wrong and I don't want to keep living this way. Often the holiest thing you can do is to say, God, search me. Like open my eyes to where, where I am self-righteous. Because it can take all kinds of forms. You know, some of you are very self-righteous towards the liberals in the world, like, you know, we're better than, but some of you see a lot of this are very self-righteous towards conservatives. Like self-righteousness, like it's indiscriminate. It can go any which way. Asking God, does my heart align with your heart for the world? I would just say as we collectively step into this season of self-reflection, examination, self-critique, it's really important that we regularly be reminded of the heart of Christ because he is not eager to condemn. He is not eager to, eager to wield the sword of judgment. He is eager, eager to show mercy. He is not a cruel taskmaster. You know, in 23.4, Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and he says, this is what your religion does? You focus on all these behaviors and this narrowness? He says, you tie up heavy loads and you just put them on people and you exhaust them. And you don't even lift a finger to help. And in contrast, in Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus doesn't say he doesn't have a yoke. Or a burden. He just says it's a whole lot lighter than that of the Pharisees. And the rest he's talking about here, I think it's the rest that comes when we don't have to hide, when we don't feel like we have to have it all together. It's the rest that comes from just 100% honesty. 
You ever had to keep a secret or felt like you were keeping a secret or lying or deceiving people? It's exhausting. And the freedom of confession, of just laying it all out there, the relief that comes from that. And the promise we have is we can lay it all out there with him and he will not condemn us. As we consider the gentleness, the kindness of the Lord, we, we move into this time of communion being reminded that he gave us this meal of sorts that we might never forget his kindness and his gentleness and his mercy. We might never forget that to be a disciple of Jesus Christ means to live an honest life before God. On the night of his betrayal, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. Cup of my blood that's going to be poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take part in this regularly in remembrance of me. And taking part in this, it provides us an opportunity to, to be honest, to confess, to repent. And maybe you don't have anything. You're like, I don't know. A lot of times that's the way I feel. Like, I don't know. There's a lot going on. And so it can be a time to just say, God, search me. Show me. But if you're here and you're a believer, I encourage you to take part in this being reminded of the love of Christ for you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that Jesus Christ offers you a life of where you can be 100% honest and where your sins will not condemn you. He is a friend of sinners. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.